Hello, welcome to our panel uh, at uh, ConV2X. Uh, we are going to be talking today to a couple of folks who are experts in the health tech analyst space. We're going to find out what that actually means, what being a health tech analyst means. We're going to talk about their thoughts on many of the comings and goings, the M&As, the funding, um, the reality of what's happening, particularly in the telehealth digital health space. Um, my name is Lyle Berkowitz. I will be your moderator. Uh, my background is uh, as a um, biomedical engineer who became a physician, who became an entrepreneur. Uh, so I've been fortunate enough to do everything from take care of patients to um, be a health system executive uh, running IT and innovation at uh, Northwestern Medicine, a large um, health system in Chicago, uh, as well as um, be the uh, chief medical officer for a variety of uh, public and private companies, uh, founder of some companies, chair, uh, and board member of a variety of companies as well. Um, and I love the health tech industry and uh, follow it closely, and I'm super excited uh, to introduce um, our panel. I'm going to give very brief introductions. Uh, they all have a, a lot deeper, richer info, but we'll hear from them in a minute. Uh, we have Jalandra Singh, uh, who is the Director of Equity Research for the Healthcare Technology and Distribution arm of Credit Suisse, um, and he covers a lot of the health tech. So he's your classic analyst. Uh, we have uh, Michael Lindenmeyer, who is a special advisor to the Tata Trust, uh, who I've become familiar with. They focus on health, nutrition, education, livelihood in India. So it gives us uh, more of a global perspective. And we have Peter Mika, who's a partner at Deloitte & Touche, uh, with over 30 years of experience in the healthcare and life sciences uh, industry, um, uh, and is their national audit industry leader for health tech. So all these folks are experts in understanding health techs in a variety of ways. But I'm going to start off a question um, to all of them, and we'll go in the order that I had said. What does it mean when, say, health tech analyst? I think I usually think, oh, that's someone at an investment bank who's sort of studying. Um, again, uh, Jalandra, maybe more the classic health tech analyst. But I want to hear from each of you your definition um, briefly of how you um, explore the health tech industry and what you provide to your company and clients, et cetera. But Jalandra, you're sort of the classic one that we usually think about. Tell us what that actually means, what your day-to-day -day life looks like. Sure, so thanks for having me, I really appreciate. Um, so I'm Jalandra Singh, uh, healthcare technology analyst at Credit Suisse. Uh, so I do equity research basically. So the my main focus is to cover uh, publicly traded healthcare IT companies. Um, what that means doing like a due diligence on those companies, speaking with management, building financial model, building projections, and using all that information and data to formulate our investment opinion and give recommendation to our institutional investor clients like you know, BlackRock, Wellington, JP Morgan, uh, Tiro. So all these clients, uh, all these are our clients. But Healthcare technology and digital health space is very unique in sense that if you are only focused on these publicly traded healthcare digital health companies, you're missing out on a lot of interesting stuff happening in the space. There's so many innovations, so many disruptions happening in the private market. So we have to keep up with you know speaking with private companies, CEOs, and founders, what they are doing, what market they are disrupting. 
So also probably our job has got a little bit more tougher compared to three years back when we talked about healthcare technology names, you will uh, say are like Cerner, you know, RCM, you know, Allscripts and Athena Health. But now there's so many players out there, so many point solutions disrupting the, the way healthcare is being consumed or accessed. So uh, probably say our day-to-day job has really evolved over the past uh, couple of years, given how much focus has been on the digital health space. But that's the gist of what we do and happy to share our thoughts on different topics we're going to cover. Right, yeah, and that makes sense. So I think you're right. We usually think about oh, covering public, but in fact, these days, yeah, you never know which private is either going to be acquired or go public. You know, every every day there's a new one. Um, yeah. Michael, tell us a, a bit about what you're doing with Tata Trust in general and um, yeah, how similar is it to what Jalandra mentioned? How different? How do you cover the industry and, and how do you bring value to your, uh, to your company? Dr. Berkowitz, thanks for moderating this panel today. I really appreciate it. Um, at the Tata Trust, it's the India's largest and oldest charitable trust. Uh, and it is a 66% owner of the largest industrial group in India, which is the Tata Group, Tata Sons. Uh, and so one of the things that I do is I build out their international partnerships. I also have a director's role over at the Stanford School of Medicine, where I look at big data and development. Uh, so what is it when, what is a health analyst uh, in my remit? So I'm one step closer to the companies. The problems I'm trying to solve for is how do we get the best uh, medical advice, interventions, and devices to those who are least well off, which is the vast majority of the planet. And so when I'm looking at companies, for-profit, non-for-profit, social impact, I ask the question, you know, can this reach these kind of people in difficult to reach places? Uh, Can it ensure their same quality uh, that you would be provided if you were in a more wealthy environment? Uh, And then also looking at how does that technology fit and suit the situation in which they're located. So uh, in a high bandwidth, you know, highly connected, high density environment with doctors, you know, that's probably the environment that Jalindra is looking at. Uh, I'm looking at, you know, these environments where you may have low bandwidth, you may have limited uh, device distribution and you will have a limited population of doctors. So it's that challenge that I look at. Uh, and it's the same set of people who are building these large companies that Jalinder looks at. They're also very interested in this segment. And so I've had a chance to work with a lot of different players who are at the bench to field innovation stage, as well as very large companies who are saying, actually, how do I reach this you know, less served audience? So you get you really look at it with a, a specific filter on helping the underserved in a variety of ways, et cetera. So immediately can um, you know, can take a different angle at it. Yes, reach the maximum number of people on the planet. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Okay, so um, uh, Peter, uh, yeah, you're at one of the big consulting companies. Um, you know, you work on the audit side, et cetera. It, it, tell us a little more, how does that work? Does Deloitte serve internally? Are they constantly following all the companies for their clients? Um, tell us a bit about your job. And quick reminder to everyone, go on mute if we're not talking so that uh, you're, um, the person who's talking will always show up on the screen. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, at Deloitte in our health tech practice, you know, we've really followed a lot of the mega trends in the overall industry around consumerism, uh, the convergence amongst the sectors, um, and the impact of the regulatory environment, really accelerating the adoption of innovative technology, accelerating the adoption of, of many of the trends that we see, whether it be value-based care, social determinants of health, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you can't help but look at all of the emerging growth companies that have some form of intellectual property, software as a service, or some unique service that's accelerating, you know, that that adoption. And um, it's an important trend. I think, uh, you know, many refer to the fact that you need to look at early adopters. We, we are very focused on emerging growth companies that are either uh, venture-backed, private equity-backed, or have some form of corporate venture. Um, and we're seeing non-traditional market participants, you know, play a significant role, you know, outside of outside of this industry. And so, you know, we view it as the white space of our of our industry. It, it's defined by what it's not. Um, it's not a traditional healthcare provider. It's not a payer. Uh, it's not a pharmaceutical company, but it is accelerating many of the mega trends that we see in the industry. And it, are you following them in large part to tell your health system clients and or large vendors about them or, and or uh, following them to try and get them to sign up to, you know, work with Deloitte in some way or some other, what, what's yeah. the main focus of, of what you're looking at them for? I think it's, I, you know, we think it, we think it's both. I think large established healthcare organizations have a lot to learn from emerging growth companies, uh, many established Healthcare organizations um, are dipping their toe into the venture pond themselves, uh, but we think understanding those emerging technologies are important. We're seeing an acceleration of alliances and the adoption of ecosystems uh, where these you know established organizations collaborate in some way with these emerging companies. So it's a bit of both. Okay, makes sense. So let's jump into evaluating the markets. Let's start with the public markets. Um, uh, and we'll go with one of the bigger ones, Teladoc. Uh, and uh, their acquisition of Livongo was one of the biggest deals uh, in health tech in the past year. Uh, and uh, as they did this, right, they acquired Livongo for you know, close to $18 billion when their market cap was, I think in the 40 billion or something. And now their combined market cap is about 22 billion. Would love each of your takes on what's going on there. And was that a, is that a success because they captured more of the market? Was it a failure because the, um, the stock price went down? Jalandra, you know, you're, you know, you're squarely in the middle of this. What was your take on this? And, you know, did you see it coming? Did you um, were you high on uh, Teladocs? What's what's Credit Suisse saying about what happened and what you think is going to happen in the future? Well, uh, did we see it coming? Obviously not. We're not supposed to know that it's coming, right, <laughs> from compliance perspective. But I will say that uh, we were actually a lot more skeptical about Teladoc model uh, before Livango transaction, because our view was that uh, the core telehealth business from their market point of view was hitting a saturation level where growth was difficult to uh, come by. So 
we actually like the transaction. I know it's a little controversial. They paid pretty decent amount of money. Uh, but we have been very positive on the transaction ever since it was announced. Again, putting valuations aside, and I would note that a large part of the deal was done with, done with Teladoc's own stock. But from a strategic standpoint, I think it was almost necessary for Teladoc to diversify their, their business. I mean, being the two leaders in their respective markets, they were bound to run into each other from a competitive standpoint at some point in the near future. So it made a lot of sense to combine versus compete with each other in addition to all of the other, other competitive threats already in existence and threats that would arise over time. We actually did our own detailed analysis in terms of quantifying the revenue synergies that were outlined. I think the opportunity is quite real. Uh, there's a lot of negativity around the transaction, but I still think that uh, beginning next year, we will start seeing the real impact because of the timing of selling season. This deal was announced in August. The deal that did not close until November of last year. And large group selling season happens in July and August timeframe. For, so for 2021, selling season was almost over when this deal got closed. So it's the real impact from that combination will happen next year. Uh, so in 2022, we're already seeing, I mean, the company has shared some data points, how they're seeing some new client wins and all. Uh, I mean, I, we are very, very positive that uh, you're going to see. So so it, the so you, you certainly like synergy, the big dog getting bigger, you know, the industry, you know, usually likes to see that. Uh, did, did the stock fall because the, uh, the public didn't like it, or was that just going to happen anyway? Was it just too high anyway, and it was bound to happen? Because um, it seemed like it was a pretty large drop in, in the overall valuation um, Yeah, relatively soon after the acquisition. Was that coincidence? Was that uh, that the public didn't understand or didn't appreciate that spending so much stock on this, or just the nature of the cycle of, of telehealth peaking during COVID and as things calm down, maybe people's excitement about telehealth um, waned a little? Well, if you look at the chart, uh, yes, it did decline initially, and uh, but uh, stock did bounce back. Stock traded uh, almost like $300 um, after Livango transaction, like late uh, last year and early part of this year. So it's not like stock has been straight down since mm -hmm. the deal has been announced. Having said that, uh, I will still say people are skeptical because their view is why did uh, Teladoc have to spend like almost 18 plus billion dollars to buy this company? Why couldn't they do, do, do on their own? Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, in this fast moving market, evolving market, you really want to spend one, two, three years trying to invest on innovative products and then start getting traction. Competitors are already moving ahead pretty fast, pretty quick, and there's a lot of consolidation happening. You want to be staying ahead of the game, and COVID actually changed things so fast, so uh, dramatic in remote patient monitoring, in chronic care management. You don't want to be left behind trying to innovate new solutions when everybody's already selling those solutions to uh, employers and insurance companies. So from that point of view, I think it was something they uh, did they overpay Time will tell, right? If, if they don't hit synergies, if they don't get best out of these uh, combination, then probably I'll say yes, they overpaid. But I think uh, it was just the the need given how um, the market was evolving. And the other things like the, the way stock shares have performed over the past 
six months or so, it's more around just overall digital health uh, space getting re-evaluated. We are in this transition phase where we are pretty much like kind of done with the COVID impact on digital health, but we're still not out of, you know, we're not in a new world. So we don't know how the new world is going to look. We are still like making all these estimate. This is what telehealth might look like. This is what RPM might look like. This is what mental health might look like. But nobody has really good insight how the new world is going to look. So we are in this transition phase, which is creating more volatility in the space. And that's why I think not just Teladoc, I mean, most digital health names have been under pressure. Yeah, and certainly one of the trends we've, we're seeing is, is more and more the M&A. Uh, Michael, what was, uh, if you have a take on Teladoc or telehealth in general, right? I mean, we talk about bringing healthcare you know, to the masses. Uh, telehealth has that opportunity. Um, with that said, yeah, Teladoc and what they're doing is they focus a little more on payer and employer sponsored. Um, but your thoughts on um, telehealth in general and also specifically uh, the Teladoc Ravango <laughs> deal. And was that something you looked at as good from your filter? Okay, so I just want to put out this as my opinion and not that of uh, the Tata Trusts, uh, just for putting that into perspective. Um, so I think uh, the question about these kind of deals is over what time horizon. You know, if you hold that stock just for a few, you know, short period, you're going to feel like you just, you know, got punched in the gut. But if you hold it over the long run, you have to ask yourself, do you think that this group of people will make wise decisions uh, to capture the present and at the margin growing digital consumer. Uh, the bigger question would be, and I think this is interesting that Jalandra said that, you know, we're kind of at the end of the COVID-19 uh, impact on accelerating digital health. I think uh, three things happened during this brief period, which then I will uh, sort of say why I think this impacts Teladoc and others like that. One is we pulled forward uh, about five to seven years worth of innovation cycle. People took all kinds of bets. Valuations remind me, um, I, I came from an investment banking background. They remind me of certain periods where people didn't have an easy mark. And so there was a lot of liquidity, few players, you know, that creates, that creates scenarios of extraordinary valuations. So I think across the board, you're going to see um, right-sizing of valuations. That doesn't mean that the trend is wrong. It doesn't mean that consumers don't want more digital health. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means, whoa, we put a lot of liquidity behind a few players. And so I think that's what you're going to see. Public, private, you know, uh, the, both those environments are facing that. Uh, there'll be a lot of damage, but there will also be very strong winners. So from my view, I think a deal like this, you know, yeah, uh, is on the is a good group of people coming together to pursue that. The biggest question, I think, period for all of digital health is: Will consumers use digital tools to actually change behavior? And that is the single biggest question, given how widespread non-communicable diseases are. So I think that's the big question someone has to ask when looking at these things. If you believe yes, then jump further in. If you think people, if you stick them with a million wearables and they still are going to, you know, do whatever it is to exacerbate their diabetes or whatnot, then no, this isn't the right path. The right path is, you know, someone in person. Yeah. And it's a great point to bring up. We, we recognize this many years ago when all these companies would come out with, oh, great results. 
um, because quite honestly, they're working with a bunch of high tech savvy people on the West Coast who already wanted to improve their diabetes, um, that it really wasn't the app as much as the motivation of the people. And I think um, that will be critical, uh, which, uh, by the way, always, you know, the, uh, the, as editor-in-chief of, of telehealth and medicine today, uh, we're always looking for articles from, you know, the you know, smaller companies or larger ones to say, what evidence do you have that this is really working? Um, I think we need to see more published research and data on that. So it, it's a great point. Um, and if it's positive, things will go up. If it's negative, then we're going to have to rethink how we do things and we'll see who can do things differently. Uh, Peter, um, so we've we've heard from Chalandra and Michael that you know they they see some positivity about you know the big gain bigger um, in this case uh, and uh, uh, what's going to happen digital health. Uh, do you agree? Disagree on some of these? And what are you telling your internal clients, your external clients, etc., when these big deals happen? Yeah. So I'll direct my comments to the broader telehealth market. And obviously COVID accelerated the awareness around telehealth and telemedicine in a way that, uh, you know, only an event like this could do. But the ingredients that drove the initial adoption were really, there were really two things. One was the breakdown of some of the regulatory barriers that existed at the time. And secondly, was reimbursement. Um, you know, virtual visits were being, you know, reimbursed at, at a level that was consistent with with face-to-face -face visits. And, um, you know, that that drove an opportunity for market participants to try to get to scale. And, you know, the law of economics, you know, held and, and consolidation ensued. Um, you know, I think the, uh, to Michael's point, um, the future of telemedicine will largely center around uh, reimbursement trends and, you know, and what that will look like. Um, some of the larger existing market participants on the financing side can certainly drive or steer uh, the adoption or accelerate the adoption of telehealth just, just, just through, um, you know, policies around reimbursement and the regulatory environment around, uh, you know, physicians crossing state, state boundaries. Um, can, this, can this be done virtually? Um, you know, on a national level, we're largely driving adoption. And, you know, I think to some extent we've seen years and years of consolidation uh, that typically occur in other sectors uh, transform in, in just a little over a year, right? And so now there are kind of a, a small subset of, you know, leading, you know, telehealth organizations, uh, many uh, traditional healthcare uh, participants are, you know, developing and driving their own solutions. But at the end, I think it will come down to how it gets financed and funded and um, the eventual regulatory environment. And so let me ask some specific questions here now. So to Peter, um, so with Teladocs, you know, being sort of the largest telehealth vendor and you've got a couple of others, you know, you've got the, you know, Amwell's Doctors on Demand slash Grand Rounds now, et cetera. Um, yeah, Cigna who bought MD Live. Um, but together, they're still a small part of who gets seen um, on, a reg, on a billion visits a year um, across the, the healthcare industry. Um, you know, they're doing you know, 20 million between them, perhaps. Uh, and the health systems have actually gone from very few to you know, doing you know, maybe you know, close to 200 million visits. What are you telling 
uh, your health systems uh, that you're working with in terms of should they be doing this themselves? Should they be working uh, with external vendors? I'm curious if you have a viewpoint on that that you share with, you know, Deloitte does work with a lot of health systems. I'm not sure if you do um, and or if you're working with, um, you know, other uh, digital health vendors, how they might work with um, the, the typical base of health systems versus going to direct consumer. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it largely depends on the, the size and scale of the organization, uh, the culture of the organization, um, whether or not organizations have a track record of developing alliances with third parties versus developing uh, their own technology in-house. Um, I think you're, we see it all over the map, depends on geography, scale, um, therapeutic class, uh, you know, et cetera. I think you'll see, you know, all of the above uh, in, in, in uh, certain organizations around the country. Uh, some, will, uh, some will do both. Um, it will depend on a number of different factors, including, as I indicated before, reimbursement in the regulatory environment. Okay, Delendra, I want to ask you a specific question on the public market. We have seen uh, a couple of interesting companies IPO as SPACs in the past year. Amwell, Hims, um, Specialist on Call, UpHealth. They've not done well. And none of them are even, I believe, at the price that they came out as. Um, what do you think's going on? Is the uh, industry just have too many telehealth companies or SPACs just getting company you know, have inherent problems? Are these companies coming out too early or are they not meeting the growth expectations people expected? Um, curious your take um, as we're probably going to still see more of these, but those four in particular, and if you know of others, let us know, um, don't seem to have you know, had the same trend of trajectory as Teladox did. Well, first of all, I, I should mention one thing that uh, if there is a company which is just providing only a, like uh, urgent care telehealth is not going to succeed. Telehealth has become a commodity, right? You got to have things beyond. And that gives, goes back to my point earlier, like how combining Livango's chronic care management, remote patient monitoring programs with telehealth capabilities and Teladox membership base makes it a much powerful entity versus being a just pure play urgent care telehealth company that I think uh, the very few companies which are going to survive in that mm -hmm. area. Sure. Now, keeping that in mind, it, uh, clearly one argument was, which I made earlier was that uh, as long as we stay in this transition phase where we have seen how like uh, tailwinds came from COVID and from innovations and con better consumer awareness, but lack of clarity how things will look in the post-COVID world is still like it's not there. I mean, we don't have good data points on that. So as long as we stay in this transition phase, I think we are going to see stock remaining very volatile. Beyond that, there have been some issues. Some of these, I mean, in fact, uh, of 13, 14 companies I cover in digital health, 80% have come public in the past 12 months. So it's a very, still very young industry. The industry is evolving. Investors' knowledge about the industry is evolving. But there are some general themes which have come across. Lack of disclosures or lack of proper disclosures. A young company who has been in the industry for only two, three years, they're careful in terms of what 
data they're disclosing to a public market because they don't want to be at a, any competitive disadvantage because their competitors are all, all private. Investors want more information. You cannot come public, you're young, you probably have to be giving a lot more disclosure. So that's um, kind of a little disconnect, like how much disclosure is enough. And uh, clearly uh, when you're trying to learn about the industry, about the company, you want more and more disclosure. So this disconnect on that side. I talked about back to normal headwind. A lot of these companies have been talking about that they can hit a certain positive long-term margin. Most of the companies in my space in digital health are losing money, like down a negative five, negative 10%, but you're promising we can get to 15, 20% margin long-term. It's a big gap. I mean, are people very comfortable? Now people are focusing on, yes, you're growing top line really well, but is that top line coming at a right contribution margin? Can you really grow top line and also keep improving margin? There's a little skeptical um, view there as well. In a recurring question in that area is, you know, we're often valuating, you know, giving valuations at a, as a tech company um, at, you know, 5, 10x, you know, to revenues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are these telehealth companies really more of a service company? Are they really more like a large primary care group uh, or medical group? In which case, you might have high revenues, but this is shades of the uh, physician practice management market of the 90s, high revenues, but very low margins, um, because most of those revenues go to pay the physician, etc. Yeah. When you look at it, when you do valuations, yeah, how do you do that? And especially when they're blended in the uh, Teladoc case, uh, Livongo was very much more of a, a tech company versus a physician you know, virtual provider company. Curious, That's- in your mind, if you're, is there a a safe, better way to do valuations and are the valuations coming out starting to say, hey, we're going to value, you know, evaluate you like a services versus a tech company? No, I mean, no way. I mean, you can value these companies like a SaaS kind of multiple, right? I mean, because SaaS companies have 90% gross margin. And you you did mention that, I mean, how even for telehealth, you have to pay these physicians the gross margins are never going to be like 90, 80, 90%, right? 50, 60, or sometimes lower. So no, I mean, clearly SaaS companies are getting much higher multiple. Um, The digital health companies uh, with these kind of gross margin profile are at a much lower multiple. So we're talking about, you know, ranging from low double digit uh, uh, kind of range plus minus. Uh, So yeah, I mean, I think that you can use that as a benchmark that this is where good gross margins SaaS companies are trading at. Then you put a discount to that that's saying, hey, look, gross margin and EBITDA margin profile on these companies is much lower than SaaS companies. So you've got to discount the valuation um, point of view. The other data point I want to mention quickly, the two data points, the why uh, shares are under pressure, increased competition. I mean, today we talk about all these individuals, companies for digital health solution. But look at the companies which are really making noise and gaining market share. Zoom. Did we ever think about Zoom being a major telehealth player two years back? No. Microsoft Teams. You have Amazon making a big push. Google investing. I mean, Microsoft. I mean, I think digital health adoption is driving increased interest from more players, more well-established technology companies, not just tech. Look at Walmart investing in telehealth. So I think, uh, and pharmacy. So my point is that this really lot of competition has increased in the past 12 months, which is 
makes sense given the market is now so attractive, but it puts pressure on your traditional digital health companies. And the last thing I'll mention is SPAC. I think a lot of these companies came public via SPAC process. Uh, I mean, people have a very skeptical view about companies using SPAC as a way to come public. Um, unfortunately, I'll say probably uh, three-fourths of maybe 60% of companies have uh, underperformed. Uh, it may not be, it it's, might be related to the way things have trended in the past six months, the industry macro trends. But uh, people uh, have a little skeptical view about uh, the SPAC, uh, you know, companies coming public through that vehicle. And Kokesh on SPAC, do you think that the issue is inherently how the SPACs are set up or simply that uh, the companies going uh, using the SPAC are often um, not as mature as a traditional IPO and, and therefore it's not the structure, it simply is the content of, of who's going uh, on SPAC? Well, I don't want to make it very like a broader comment that all SPACs are, uh, I mean, there are some good companies which have come public via SPAC and are doing really well. Fundamentally, they've exceeded expectations. But there are, I should probably say, uh, six out of 10, seven out of 10 companies which have underperformed. And that makes people, investors believe, a feedback we get is like, maybe these guys are just giving out these very rosy projections for next three years to get the SPAC deal done. But in fact, they don't have good uh, plan or drivers in place to hit those projections. So that's one. Second thing is that there's a just, uh, again, these are not my view, investors feedback that maybe there's not enough due diligence done on these SPAC and uh, you know the kind of process you follow in IPO, which takes much longer time frame, but it's a lot of detailed uh, review and due diligence done in that process. So that's another reason why you know uh, people have a little skeptical view about these SPACs outperforming these uh, these uh, companies. But but I, I, again, I'll repeat, there's some really good companies which have come public via SPAC and doing really well. Yeah, so it seems that they attract sometimes the earlier uh, companies that, yeah. that aren't meeting the, the predictions. Uh, Michael, let's talk about one of the big trends out there, of course, is M&A growth, et cetera. But another trend in telehealth are the NICS companies, companies that are often doing um, you know, very focused, specific area. And curious if, you know, when you look at these, you're looking for those who um, maybe can help uh, the underserved, et cetera. How do you, when you look at them and think about business model and valuations, how does that work? Some of them, yeah, you know, I've seen are getting very large valuations, uh, even though their total addressable market may not be that large. Curious how you're looking at these, deciding if and where um, one should invest, provide money, support them, et cetera. Because unfortunately, um, if you're serving an underserved market, that may, me may mean uh, you don't have as good of a business model, for example, of a, a lifestyle company selling um, you know, ED or hair loss meds uh, for direct-to-consumer cash, um, whereas taking care of an underserved community you know, may not have as much money, although, of course, there are government funds. But what are your thoughts on some of those niches that you've been seeing, and what is a great business model that you've seen for those who want to go into that area? So thank you for the question. In terms of the niches that I look at, um, there are two that I look at right now. And these are driven by the fact that there's a shortage of doctors and nurses in the places where I operate. And so even if we're maximally training the number of you know, physicians and nurses and you know, advanced type of nurses, 
uh, you will still need other tools that can help you do some of the initial screening and to be able to engage with people after any would-be in-person visit. So I do look at an either side of that experience. And those include uh, things that are looking at AI and machine learning to be able to screen, you know, radiographs and things like this so that you can get an early indication. So in the market where uh, some of the markets where I operate, cancer is often detected at stage four. That's a really difficult place to evaluate someone and then win that war. Um, so I look at things that catch that very early on. And some of these can be extremely low cost with very large addressable markets because they are in public payer systems. So in the United States, you know, uh, that is not the way, or broadly speaking, it's not the way it's laid out, but in Europe and in uh, increasingly in India, uh, they're going to be rolling out a, you know, payer, a single payer system approach. And so it's in their vested interest to get these early diagnostics out there so that they can help people sooner versus later in any particular uh, disease stage, which would be much more expensive. So I look at a lot of that. Uh, type of technology. The other thing I would say is in terms of medical devices, it's really interesting. If you look at, um, you know, type 2 diabetes management or type 1 diabetes management, the actual device itself, a glucometer, uh, is ripe for serious uh, competitive innovation. Uh, in, you know, in the developed markets, like 1200 bucks a year, uh, and then if you want to think about that, you know, for someone in an emerging market, that's, that's incredibly expensive. That might be their, you know, half or all of their annual salary. But the device itself is not, you know, the component pieces of it aren't something that require rocket science per se. So I think like devices that serve really big markets right now, you should take an eye on some of these low cost resource environments because they're going to innovate medical devices, which then to Peter's point, if they make it through the regulatory hurdles, could be really interesting for a place like here in the US, where you could then dramatically lower the cost of these things at the same benefit and same kind of digital uh, data being thrown off that then empowers you know, all the participants around it. So those and are the let, things. Let me follow up a little on that, because yes. I'll often define the umbrella term of virtual care includes yes. both telehealth, which is the traditional doctor patient, you know, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, and then another component that's autonomous care, AI, et cetera. And it seems like a place like India, you know, where I'm sure the, there are not nearly enough doctors for all the patients. Um, there's a, yeah, you know, I think you're saying there's a sort of public you know, system or single payer for a lot of patients. Seems like the ideal place to really test out, so to speak, or be early adopters for this autonomous type of, of care. Uh, do you see any companies out of the US coming to India first because you know, maybe the is the regulatory bar lower? Is the ability to use the phone to do everything from check your blood pressure, temperature, and glucose to actually autonomously manage a patient's care, minimizing how much a doctor's involved? Is that gonna happen and be widespread in a place like India well before the US? So I think India has a fairly rigorous regulatory environment. So it's not a low regulatory environment, but what their government is thinking about is how to be innovative and serve that many people. So it's a very different uh, dynamic because they at the end of the day are the, going to be the payer uh, and they do want a healthy thriving population so that they can grow as a country and their economy. So I think that in the environment you see large populations 
uh, with some level of wealth in the nation already as a really good boomerang technology environment. So I think you're going to see more and more people trying these low cost, high quality, high benefit, you know, in terms of like what the device can do, technologies uh, coming back. And in terms of the AI and machine learning, the good thing about that is that that can be created anywhere and distributed anywhere as long as the, tech, the regulatory environment and the reimbursement system engages it because it's all about you know, understanding how to create the better, smarter algorithm uh, for this. And I think you're going to see more of that everywhere. Uh, you can already see this in other industries, uh, including in the consulting world. They'll have very large groups of people in India and elsewhere who are doing a lot of the you know, frontline research, and then that gets brought up and further bolted on with, you know, high quality professionals in other markets. Uh, so in India, I think what's going to happen now is that, you know, uh, you're going to have a phenomena and you're seeing it now. They're finally people, in, you know, really investing in that market that many of these Silicon Valley companies are actually Indian companies. They'll have like maybe one or two people in Palo Alto and a hundred in India. Well, if they're the people designing it, it doesn't take that long now for them to say, wait a minute, I actually could create this as well. So I think this is what you're going to see and beginning to see with private equity investors like Carlisle Group and others really taking a big presence in India because they understand, oh, this is actually where a lot of this is being built to begin with. Makes sense. Okay, little speed round. Um, uh, Peter, starting with you, um, what are your predictions you know, through the end of the year um, yeah, and beyond if you want. And uh, particularly, Jalandra mentioned earlier, some big tech, you know, getting in and out of healthcare. Amazon, you know, is really pushing. Google is backed out. What's Microsoft doing? They're hosting everybody. Um, but what are your thoughts on what's going to happen uh, over um, the next couple of months through the end of the year? And um, and curious if you have a specific thoughts on uh, Amazon and other big tech getting into healthcare. Yeah. So maybe a follow-up point on the investor lens, because we, we speak with a lot of investors in this space. Um, and investors are looking for solutions. We're looking for organizations that have solutions to massive healthcare problems and not necessarily technology. To your point, technology is ubiquitous, becoming you know, commoditized. We do see a focus and you know, we predict artificial intelligence will be an important part of the overall solution to healthcare issues like access to healthcare, affordability, the cost of care, the adoption of value-based care paradigms and the regulatory environment. Um, you know, our view is that that is what's gonna get funded and not necessarily technology but technology through either a managed service or some intellectual property software, or even just a service that's collaborated with, with clinical experience to solve a macro healthcare problem will get funded. That, that's our view uh, in the future of health uh, with respect to this industry. Okay, and uh, quickly, um... Uh, Michael, any thoughts on what you see as any big, cool new things happening uh, through the end of the year? Any predictions or um, uh, uh, thoughts on uh, big tech or other? So one of the areas I'm really keenly looking at is diabetes care. And I do think that there will be, maybe not by the end of this year, but <laughs> over the couple years, serious innovation in the device space. Once that happens, you're gonna be able to have a much larger addressable market, which right now, which is about 500 million people worldwide. 
I think the other area that I spend a lot of time looking at are NCDs and insurance companies. These are the two that are actually have aligned interests to find solutions towards this. You know, insurance companies want healthy people, you know, and working at the margin with the sick people, right? Unfortunately, right now, if you look at their total population, it's mainly chronically sick, you know, and they're trying to manage down costs. So I think anything that has to do with behavior change is going to be really interesting and that these two areas are going to be most aligned. And the final one where I spent a lot of time is in mental health. I don't think this is going away now. I think COVID allowed people to talk about mental health. This is a worldwide issue. I don't think digital technology is the only solution to it. It's certainly going to be an important part of it. Uh, I think valuations are all over the map in that category, but the overall trend of digital tools being used in mental health as an early part of that process and mental health care period, having a, a seat at the table uh, from investors and from opportunities, from engagement from consumers will be large. I'll make sense. Kalandra, you want to take us home with uh, one minute, uh, talk about new entrants, big tech, cool stuff you think is going to happen uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, I would say, I mean, first of all, I do agree with Michael about this chronic care focus and mental health focus. I think employers and uh, providers, uh, I mean, employers in particular, insurance companies are not losing their sleep over, hey, why, why did my employees show up in urgent care and cost me 100 bucks? They're worried about their chronic care population. They're worried about employee well-being, total population health. I think that is will be the key with their core focus. But in terms of your core question, like what I think that uh, as something to watch for next six to 12 months, I got, I think we have to watch for more MA, more consolidation. I mean, look at what has happened in the past six to 12 months. Teladoc Levango, we talked about, One Medical Iora, Grand Rounds TOD, Headspace Changer, Omarda Fisera, Acre. I mean, this list just goes on and on. The fact is that companies not having done a larger deal and providing one point solution are now facing an uphill battle when it comes to bringing more comprehensive set of solutions to the market, to employers and health plan. People are looking for more one-stop shop where we can have best of brand, like best solutions out there. And uh, it just it's not just beyond, uh, the, the rationale of these combination goes beyond just integrating the products and services and having more comprehensive solution. Rather, the large transactions essentially open up new channels and potential customer from both sides where there is already a relationship. So I think we're going to see a lot of MA, a lot of consolidation in the in the digital health space. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that they'll make a lot of sense. Listen, everybody, thank you so much to Landra, Michael, Peter. Um, great to talk about all this this stuff we we love. Maybe our wives think it's geeky, but uh, uh, hopefully every of the listeners enjoyed it. Um, so thanks again for your time and hope everyone enjoys the rest of the conference. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.